Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. Uh, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 16 today. And then uh, for a few weeks, we're going to be talking a little bit about Christmas. And so we will get a little more into the Christmas season as uh, time goes on. But today we're in 1 John 3, uh, 16, and we're going to work our way through verse 18. As John is going to encourage us to love one another. Even though we know we're supposed to do that, we need a little encouragement. So I'll give you an example. Uh, The longer you're married, the more that you actually love your spouse, the more that you grow in love for your spouse. Now, it's a different kind of love. It's not when you're just dating, which is more just infatuation or being Twitter-pated, to quote Bambi. Uh, It is a deeper type of love, but you also have to be encouraged to love because sometimes you can start to grow selfish. And so, for example, uh, the first year that I was married, if Katie asked me to do something, I would just do it turn off the lamp or go get me a drink of water or whatever it is, and I would super do it. Today, though, we have conversations that go something like this. We sit down on the couch to watch TV, and here's the conversation. Hey, will you turn out the lamp? I turned out the lamp last night. You go turn out the lamp. I don't want to turn out the lamp. Should we just watch the TV with the light on? No, here, I'll trade you. I'll give you this blanket if you'll go turn out the lamp. That's what happens, okay? First year of marriage, I was very concerned that I didn't wake her up while she was sleeping. So sometimes I snore, and sometimes I'll snore myself awake. You ever do that? There's never a time I hate myself more than when I'm laying there, I'm like, and I like choke myself awake, and I'd look over to make sure I didn't wake up Katie. I'm like, okay, good, didn't wake her up. But now, she'll wake me up, and she'll say, you're snoring. And I will say, that means I was sleeping, doesn't it? And then I'll roll back over. Okay? So though we love each other, we also have to be encouraged to love one another. The same is true in Christianity. We love each other. We know we're supposed to love each other, but what John's going to do is he's going to encourage us in that love. And this is the corollary to Jeff's passage last week. Last week, Jeff talked about how we shouldn't be like Cain, this murderer, this one who hates, but rather we should love each other is what we'll see in this text uh, today. And also, one more thing before we get into the text, notice that the Bible doesn't just give us rules it gives us the gospel first, okay? God doesn't just give Adam and Eve the rule not to eat of the tree. He gives them grace first. He gives them the garden. He delivers the Israelites out of Egypt before he gives them the law. He, uh, here in John, we've already seen that John has talked about who Jesus is, that if somebody comes claiming a new Jesus, a different Jesus than the church has always worshiped, that they are a heretic. He's given us good theology and the hope of redemption, that if we sin, we have an advocate, that we can be forgiven for our sins. If we confess our sins, he'll forgive us of our unrighteousness. After the Bible gives us theology, after the Bible gives us grace, then it gives us the rule. Then it gives us what we should do. So keep that in mind. The Bible doesn't just give you rules, it gives you grace, and then because you've already been given grace, you're already made right before God by faith alone in Christ alone, then you're given what that should look like in your day-to-day life. So let's pray, and then we will get into verse 16. Almighty God, we come before you today as confessors of the Christian faith, the historic Orthodox Faith, we confess that there is no God but one, and yet this God is Father, Son, and Spirit, that the Son is co-equal and co-eternal, eternally begotten of the Father, and that the Spirit is co-equal and co-eternal, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And we love you. We pray that you would bless this time. We pray that you would bless the teaching of your word. Your word is already inspired. Would you help me not get in the way of that? Would you help our sin and our presuppositions not get in the way of that? We thank you for this text. In Christ's name, amen. Verse 16a, that's the first half of verse 16. Let's see what it says here. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us. Okay, now listen to what I'm about to say because this is huge. 
So much of the Christian life is you knowing that God loves you, okay? You knowing that God loves you. If you don't know that God loves you, if you think God doesn't like you, you think God is angry with you, you think God is disappointed with you, that will affect everything else you do. And this text just gave us how we can know God loves us. So let me ask you this question. If I were to ask you, how do you know that God loves you, what answer would you give? Maybe you say, I feel like he loves me. Maybe that's your answer. That is a terrible answer. Do you know why? Because your feelings can lie to you. If you think that God loves you because you feel like he loves you, what are you going to think when you don't feel like he loves you? You're going to think that he actually doesn't love you. So if I ask you, how do you know God loves you? You might say, well, a lot of things are going well in my life. What's the problem with that answer? When things go poorly, you're going to think that God doesn't love you. You might say, well, I I think God loves me because I'm not suffering. What's the problem with that? When you go through suffering, you're going to think that God doesn't love you, despite the fact that in the Bible it seems like God loves those the most that go through the most suffering. You might say, well, Zach, I, I know God loves me because God answers my prayers. What's the problem with that? You're going to think that when he doesn't answer your prayers, he doesn't love you. Or you might say, you know what, Zach, I know that God loves me because that's what my mom told me when I was growing up. That's what my grandma told me. That's what a pastor told me. Well, what's the problem with that? These people could be wrong. These people tell you all kinds of things that are wrong. When you finally become an adult, you're like, wait a second, if I cross my eyes, they won't get stuck. They tell you all kinds of things that are not correct, okay? You might say, well, Zach, I know that God loves me because I try to live a holy life. Well, what's the problem with that? When you walk in sin or you start struggling, then you're gonna think that God doesn't love you. A holy life is the result of grace. It's not what causes grace. You might say, well, Zach, I know that God loves me because I try to love God. There's two problems with that. One, there are days that you do not. Every time you sin, you're not loving God. You are loving your sin more than God, at least for that short amount of time that you're sinning. And two, that is not how we know that God loves us, by us trying to love God. We don't love God the way he deserves to be loved. We don't love him with an infinite love. You might say, well, Zach, the way that I know that uh, that God loves me is because I have a lot of possessions or I have a lot of money. What's the problem with that? One, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But two, if you don't have that money, then you're gonna think that God doesn't love you. To quote John Piper, prosperity cannot be a proof of God's favor since it is what the devil promises to those who worship him, okay? How do you know that God loves you? Everything I just mentioned can be wrong. Everything I just mentioned is subjective. Everything I just mentioned can change. It can be taken away. Here is how you know that God loves you according to this text, because Christ died for you. It's objective. It's in the past. It does not change. That's how you know. I've told this story before, but I think it bears repeating here. There's a New Testament scholar I like named D.A. Carson, and he was on a mission trip, and a guy came up to him and said, Dr. Carson, I've always struggled to know that God loves me. But last night I had a dream and my mom was giving birth to me and Jesus was the doctor there to receive me. And from that time on, I have felt like just all day that God just loves me. Now, what would you say if somebody said that to you? You might say, great, I'm so glad that God encouraged you with this dream. Well, D.A. Carson knows his Bible better than that. And he said, okay, let me make sure I understand what you're saying here. The way you know that God loves you is because you had a dream that your mom gave birth to you and Jesus was the doctor. How do you know that's from God? How do you know, how's that not just your own mind? How do you know you didn't just like eat a bunch of bad Mexican food and go to bed on a full stomach and have this weird dream? You see, in the future, when you start doubting God's love, guess what you're gonna run to? A dream. 
You're going to need another dream or you're going to have to run back to this weird subjective experience. Here is how you know that God loves you because Christ died for you. That's how you know. It's objective. It doesn't change. When your head hits the pillow at night and you think through your day of how you did that day and whether or not God's happy with you, you don't have to do that anymore if you know that God's love for you is based on the cross because nothing has changed throughout your day when it comes to Christ having died for you. You need to see that this text says the way we know love is because Christ died for us. But there's a second thing I want you to see in this text. It's not just that we know God's love, although that's certainly true. Here, what John is doing is he's giving us a general description of love. He's explaining what love looks like. Love doesn't look like indifference like we saw last week. Love doesn't look like anger and murder and these kind of things. He's going to give us a, a description of what love looks like. And so what I want to do is I've come up with a little definition of love because this is one of the most abused words, I think, in our culture, right? So we use the word love for all kinds of things. We use it for evil things. So let me give you a biblical definition of love based on this text. You ready? Here it is. Love. Doing what the Bible says is best for someone, even if it costs you. Notice the three parts of that definition. First of all, you're doing what's best for somebody, okay? Not what they think is best. That's huge. You're doing what's best for somebody, You know that based upon what the Bible says, and oftentimes it will cost you. It doesn't always cost you to help somebody, but oftentimes it will cost you. Think about why this definition is important. If this is true, it means when somebody says, you shouldn't do church discipline, that's unloving. You have to stop and say, well, wait a second. Is church discipline in the Bible and what's best for somebody and sometimes cost us? Yes, then therefore it's loving. Zach, you shouldn't tell somebody they need to stay in this difficult marriage even though they don't have grounds for divorce. That's unloving. That's mean. Well, let's go to our definition of love. Is it what the Bible says is best for this person and it sometimes costs us? Yes. Yes, that is loving. Notice that you cannot, two men that want to get married in that sense, cannot love one another. They they can have a strong feeling. That's typically what we define as love. We define love as this strong feeling. You can have a strong feeling, but they can't love each other in a biblical sense. How is it loving to push someone further away from God? How is it loving to encourage somebody in their sin? It's not. It's hatred. You cannot love a mistress. You can have strong feelings for a mistress, but you can't love her. You can't do what's best for her by being in a relationship with her. No, actually, you hate her. If you love somebody, you do what's best for them. You don't push them away from God. You don't encourage them in their sin. This is a very important definition here because this is the way that Christ loves us. He does what's best for us from a biblical perspective, even though it cost him, even though it cost him. That's what verse 16a is talking about. Now look at the last part of 16a, that he laid down his life for us. I want you to notice two things here. First of all, notice that it's voluntary. This wasn't something like Jesus is tricked into. He voluntarily lays down his life. He lays it down. Hebrews 12.2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. By the way, on that last verse, there's a little joke here, which goes something like this. We know that Jesus drove a Honda. He just didn't talk about it because he said, I didn't speak of my own accord. Okay, there you go. That's just to keep you awake. Now, what I want you to see at the end of verse 16 is this, where it says he laid down his life for us. This is known in theology as penal substitutionary atonement, okay? Penal relates to punishment. It relates to law. What is Texas Penal Code 9? It's when you can shoot somebody in Texas, okay? 
Or the penal system is where somebody goes into a correctional facility. That word has to do with punishment. It has to do with law. It has to do with wrath, okay? Substitute, we all know what a substitute is. It's where one thing stands in for another thing. And then the word atonement is where two parties are brought together. So what happens in the death of Christ is that he takes the wrath of God, the punishment, because we've broken the law, and he does it in our place so that we might be reconciled to God, okay? Let me say it as strongly as I can. God cannot just forgive you. God cannot just wink at your sin and act like everything's okay. Because if he does that, he is an unjust judge. If a judge lets a serial killer go back in society because he's sorry, that is an unjust judge. The judge's job is to mete out the punishment of the law. God cannot just forgive you because he has bound himself. He has said, quote, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So God may not lie. So what's happening here is that God has to punish us for our sin, either for eternity in hell or the wrath of God and our punishment can be taken by another, one who is our substitute, one who lays down his life for us, and that's what he has done in Christ. God cannot just forgive you and still be just. He must mete out the punishment. But what's so crazy is that God himself is the one that comes down, becomes incarnate, takes the punishment for us so that God is just and we are loved. And we are loved. Let's look at the second half of verse 16. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In the same way that Christ died for us, this text is saying we should lay down our lives as well. Now, first, I want you to see that sometimes this does mean that you will literally have to lay down your life for another Christian. You see this a lot in times of persecution where somebody refuses to give up the roster of their church membership and they get killed for it, okay? I'll tell you about one of the most intense phone calls I've ever gotten in ministry. I was working at another church, and I got a call from a guy who does ministry in Muslim countries. He helps get people out of Islam and into uh, Christianity, and he called me, and he said, Zach, we've got a guy over in the Middle East who's a leader in Hezbollah. You know what Hezbollah is? It's like a Muslim terrorist organization. Think like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, okay? We've got a leader in Hezbollah, and he's just become a Christian, and he has two questions. One, what does he do about baptism? And two, how does he share the gospel with his Muslim family? Because if they report him or somebody sees his baptism, he will be killed. And I said, okay, let me, let me put this burrito down and I'm going to call you back. Okay, I'm going to do a little research and I'm going to call you back. And so uh, I knew the right answer, but I just wanted to check because if I give him the wrong advice, this guy dies, Okay. So I call a guy, his name's J. Scott Bridger. He's this expert on uh, Islam and Christianity. He did his PhD in that. He did four master's degrees in that. He speaks fluent Arabic. He was a missionary in the Middle East. And I'm like, hey, Dr. Bridger, uh, I've got a question about a guy who might die because Hezbollah stuff. Do you have a second? He's like, sure. And so we talk and we go back and forth and we formulate a game plan. And so I call this guy back and basically say this, say, okay, here's the two things you need to tell him. One, He is required to get baptized. That's a biblical command. But he doesn't have to go like do it in the open square, right? He can do it secretly in somebody's basement or something. That's totally fine. He's not doing that because he's ashamed. He's just trying to not make himself a martyr. If you become a martyr, great. But you don't shoot for that, okay? You don't shoot for that. And then when it comes to sharing the gospel with his family, he is required to share the gospel with his family. But he has to do so in a smart way. He has to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. And so what they decided to do was use, there was a Jesus video that was in Arabic and he decided to show his family that video and then just kind of ask them, what do you guys think about that? And he was gonna start making inroads with sharing the gospel with his family. So sometimes being a Christian will cost you your life. 
there, There will be a risk as you love other people that you could get killed. John 15, 13 says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But I don't think that's the primary emphasis on this passage. Okay, I don't think that's the primary emphasis on this passage. I think the primary emphasis on this passage is that we lay down our lives by living for one another. Not always by dying for one another, yes, maybe sometimes, but that we lay down our lives by living for one another. How do I know this? Because the very next verse we'll look at in just a second talks about helping Christians in need, and you can't do that very well if you're dead. Okay, just basic, uh, basic physics there for you. So the idea is not that we just die for each other, which we might be called to do. It's that we live our lives for one another. We serve one another, which, by the way, is sometimes more difficult, okay? So if somebody tries to break into my house at night, I have no problem dying for my wife. I think most men feel that way, right? Like even a guy who's a bad husband, if they hear glass break at two in the morning, he's not like, hey, honey, go check it out. Here, take this pocket knife. Go check it out, right? For me, I'm like, yes, this is finally happening and I'm getting ready, okay? I'm excited about this. And that person is gonna have to go through me. By the way, if I ever get subpoenaed, I need you to not say that I said that, okay? Uh, That person's gonna have to go through me to get to my wife and to my kids. It is easy to lay down my life for my wife. You know what's really hard? Getting my socks in the hamper. Getting my bowl in the sink or in the dishwasher. Dying for my wife is easy. Living for her is much harder. And so I think you're supposed to see here in this text this idea that yes, we might die for one another, but you're supposed to see if Christ is willing to die for you, are you not willing to help your brother? That's kind of the idea that's going on here. Really all it's saying is the same thing that's in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, which is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Now, I need to say something real quick before I move on. This is a little sub point. This isn't the main point, but I need to say it anyway. I have heard multiple pastors When they're talking about this verse, you know what they spend all the time on? Talking about how you should love yourself. When they get to this verse, they talk about you can't give something you don't have. So you need to love yourself. You don't have to tell humans to love ourselves. We do that just fine, thank you, okay? The emphasis on this passage is not that we need to love ourselves. We love ourselves too much. The problem is that we don't love others. That's the idea, that we don't love others. Most of our days are not spent thinking about other people. We think about our job, our family, our retirement, our plans, our vacation. We're stuck in traffic. We're not letting that person over because us, 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 us. And if there's anything left, we give it to others, okay? That's not loving others as yourself. I was sitting in a uh, counseling session one time. I get, I get counseling because I messed up. And I was talking to this counselor and I said, man, I just, I feel like I struggle with a lot of self-hate. That's what I said, a lot of self-hate. And he kind of smirked and he said, Self-hate is a term the world uses. That's not a biblical idea. I'm like, what do you mean it's not a biblical idea? And then he opened his Bible and read, no man ever hated his own flesh, but rather nourishes it and cherishes it, da 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 He goes, there's no such thing as self-hate. The problem's not that you hate yourself. It's that you love yourself more than God, and that's your problem. And I was like, no, that's not it. <laughs> and then like two seconds went by, and I was like, yeah, that's it, Okay. I was like, what do you mean there's no such thing as self-hate? He said, okay, so so you're saying you have self-hate, which means you don't want to have self-hate, right? I said, right. And he goes, so you actually want to do what's good for yourself. You always do what you think is best for you. Even the person who commits suicide thinks that whatever's on the other end of that bullet is better than what they're going through. The problem is not that you need to tell us to love ourselves. We do that just fine. The problem is that we don't love God. The problem is that we don't love others, okay? Verse 17. 
But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Okay? Notice, if Jesus is willing to die for you, are you not willing to help a brother in need? That's what it's saying. This is what is known in logic as an a fortiori argument. We've used this term several times because the Bible uses this type of argument all the time. An a fortiori argument is where you argue to the stronger. That's what the word means in Latin. If you can prove the stronger thing, then proving the easier thing is easy. Does that make sense? Let me, let me give you an example. If I can run, if you can run two miles, can you run one mile? Anybody say no to that? Yes, right? It's hard to run two miles without first going through one, okay? If you can lift 200 pounds, can you lift 100 pounds? Yes, perfect. That little kid gets it. Out of the mouth of babes. Out of the mouth of babes. The truth, the truth is spoken, okay? If you are taller than Carl, then you're much taller than Tim by default, okay? If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. <clears throat> if you can beat up, if you can beat up Mike Tyson, then you can beat up his little sister, okay? It's just an all fortiori, okay? If you can do the harder thing, you can do the easier thing. And so what this text is saying is, if Christ is willing to die for you, can you not help a brother in need? Can you not give to one in need? Can you not spare some change? Can you not give someone a meal? Can you not help them find a job? Whatever it might be. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11 says this. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his needs, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. Let me pause real quick just to explain that. In Israel, there were certain times where you had to forgive people of their debts. What this text is saying is don't say to yourself, uh, when am I going to get my money back? When is this release going to be over? That kind of idea. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Let me pause to say something political, may I? Any political theory you hold that thinks that you can completely get rid of poverty is unbiblical. The Bible says you will always have the poor. The same thing is said in the New Testament. Yes, help the poor. That doesn't mean you can't minimize poverty. But this idea of some utopia where there will be no more poor people doesn't exist until the new heavens and new earth. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land, okay? All John is doing here is repeating what the, the wisdom we already have from God's word in the Old Testament is that we are to care for our brother. Now look again at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods, that means food, clothing, shelter, the kind of stuff that you need, and sees his brother in need, now look at this next phrase, yet closes his heart against him. Do you actually feel anything with your heart? Any biology majors? No. This is an idiom when we talk about our hearts, right? When I say, I love you with my whole heart, literally all I'm saying is, I love you with my blood-pumping muscle that doesn't feel any love, right? Your heart just pumps blood. That's its job. When we say heart, we mean something like our innermost self or our soul? Well, here in Greek, it doesn't use the word heart. It uses the word splunkna, which is guts, 
love you with my whole guts, right? Which I think makes more sense because that's where you feel emotion. So if you get butterflies, you get butterflies in your stomach. Or if you're almost in a car wreck and you get that adrenaline dump, you get that in your stomach. It makes more sense to say that. The uh, King James Version says that uh, the brother shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, okay? I'm gonna start using that to Katie. I love you with all my bowels of compassion, right? The idea here, though, is this, that you see somebody who is in need, a brother, and you intentionally turn away. You have that little prompting, I should help this person, and you hard-heartedly turn away. Or maybe because of indifference, you've been not helping people for so long, you don't even feel it, okay? That's the idea, is that you see someone who has a need, and you, you, you turn away from that inkling inside of you that lets you know you should be helping him. This is what I do anytime somebody asks me to help them move, okay? If you ask me to help you move, guess what? I'm busy that day. Doesn't matter what day it is. I will find something to do and schedule it that day, okay? I will shut up my bowels of compassion against you, and I will not help you move your 500-pound fridge, okay? Now, let me ask this question. Verse 17 is very simple. Christ died for you. Are you not willing to help someone else who's in need? Let me ask this question, though, because we have to do whole Bible theology, Okay, the, the, the heretics become heretics because they ignore what the rest of the Bible says and just focus on one verse. So let me ask this question. Does this mean that if somebody asks you for money, that if somebody asks you for some other thing, that you give it to them every single time? Is that what this text means? That if every time somebody asks you for money that you give to them. Doesn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, give to everyone who asks of you to give and not to turn away? Are there ever exceptions to that? And I would say, yes, there are exceptions to that. Let me give you a few reasons why. First of all, notice that the context here is brothers. There are other passages in the Bible about helping the generic poor. This passage is specifically about helping Christians who are in need, okay? Next, sometimes what people need, remember our definition of love, right? It's doing what's best for somebody according to the Bible, even if it costs you. Sometimes what people need is actual help and not just money, okay? Let let me say it a little stronger. Let's say you take all the money in America and you give everyone an equal share of that. Will they all have an equal share in 10 years? No. Guess what? Some people will get rid of it really quickly and be poor again. To quote Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, capitalism, God's way of finding out who is smart and who is poor, okay? The problem is not money. Money's a symptom of the problem. The problem is something broken in the human heart. We either idolize it, we idolize money, we love it too much, or we use it poorly and make poor decisions. Lastly, you're not to give to somebody if what they're asking you enables them in sin, if what they're asking of you actually hurts them. Let me tell you a little story. I've never told this story publicly, so you get to be the first to get to hear this. First church I was ever at was at a little Baptist church up near the Red River, okay, where Texas and Oklahoma meet. And uh, we lived out in the middle of nowhere. So my wife and I, we lived in what is called a parsonage. Do you know what a parsonage is? It is where the church gives the pastor a house, but it's not a very good house, and it's on the church property, okay? It's the worst idea anyone has ever had. Right after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they thought to themselves, pastors should have parsonages. That's what they thought, okay? Because one, you don't get paid as well because they're giving you this terrible house. And two, you're always on the clock, 24-7, 365, anybody that wants to can just go to your house slash church, okay, and try to get help. Now, we lived near nobody. We were out in the middle of the sticks. It was a 15-minute drive either direction before you got cell phone reception. I've never been in a place like that, okay? That's like the moon. 
the only person that lived near us, there was a halfway house right next to us for people that were, you know, trying to get off drugs and these kind of things. Well, one day, a gentleman moved into that uh, trailer, that, uh, that house near us, and, uh, and things started going south from there, okay? I thought, here's a guy who needs some help. Here's a guy who needs the gospel. Maybe he'll start coming to the church. And it turns out that this guy was legit crazy. Not just from the drug stuff, but legit crazy. His name, I won't give you his last name because uh, I don't want to dishonor him, but I'll give you his first and middle name, and I think you'll understand the kind of home that he grew up in. His name was Rocky Rhodes, Okay? Those are his parents. Rocky Rhodes. Now, first night I met him, he came over to my house at 11.30 at night and said, I just had a gun to my chest. I figured I would either pull the trigger or come talk to the pastor. Okay? So I thought, okay. Let's... So I ministered to this guy, encouraged him, started counseling him, and then things got weirder and weirder. He started calling my wife by his ex-wife's name. He started telling people weird stories. So he would tell people at the church that, yeah, Pastor Zach and I, we sit out on the front porch and drink coffee and watch mountain lions every morning. And I'm like, Mountain? This is like, how, how many mountains are in the Oklahoma-Texas border, right? And so he's saying all these things. One time he said, uh, I used to think about becoming a serial killer, and now I've got the weapons to do it. And I was like, hey, I need you to unpack that a little bit for me. What's your meaning? Because uh, I might have to make a phone call that involves three numbers. Uh, and so, uh, so we start doing all this kind of stuff. And one day, he comes over, and he knocks on my, oh, he would, he would call at two in the morning. He would sometimes call six times in a row. And I would look out the window and he would be standing on his porch staring at my house with his phone to his ear, okay? Former Marine, PTSD, had all kinds of issues. And one day he comes over to my house and he starts knocking on the door and he's like, I'm like, hey, Rocky, what, uh, what is it today? And uh, he's like, well, I need you to know, I just drank an entire bottle of whiskey and I'm about to crash and I can't go to the hospital. There's a warrant out for my arrest. And so I need you to buy me some more liquor. Now, do I then say, Jesus says, Give to everyone who asks of you. This text here says if you see your brother in need, he claimed to be a Christian. If I see my brother in need, I don't want him to feel bad from his alcoholism. Should I then give him liquor? No. I said, man, listen, I'm not against drinking. I'm against you drinking because you're drunk right now. I'm a pastor. I'm not going to buy you liquor. And he said, I totally understand. Here's what I want you to do instead. Will you run to the store and just buy me a whole ton of NyQuil? And I was like, this is back when NyQuil had alcohol in it. I was like, hey, man, I'm not as dumb as I look. And the answer is no. I will drive you to the hospital or leave me alone, okay? Now, what happened to Sweet Rocky? I'm going to say this just to finish the story, to tie a bow on it. This is not a joke. His ex-wife killed him with a shotgun, okay? So that was, uh, that was the story of, uh, of Rocky. It was in self-defense. And uh, it was, uh, that was my intro into ministry. So if you ever think, why is Zach anxious all the time? Why is Zach weird all the time? Because of Rocky, Okay. As a good millennial, I would like to blame other people. Now, I want you to understand this text is saying that you should help those in need, but you have to give them what is actually good for them. What most people do when they see someone who's poor, they just give them money to get their conscience off their back. When you do that, you're serving yourself. You're not really serving them. You just don't want to feel bad. But sometimes that's not what the people need. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. What is a good motivator to work hard? Not being hungry. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness 
and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You don't just have the rich and the poor. That's often how it's pitched in, uh, in our culture, okay? The rich are bad, and somehow the poor is good. You have righteous rich and unrighteous rich, just like you have righteous poor and unrighteous poor. Some people are rich because God has blessed them because they have worked hard and they have used their talents. Other people, though, are rich because they've cheated the system. They've climbed over the backs of others. They've stolen, they've lied, they've been shady businessmen. One is good and one is bad. The same thing is true with those who are poor. Some people are poor due to no fault of their own. They get cancer and they just can't pay their bills, okay? They're not poor due to some fault of their own. There are others, though, there's, they're unrighteously poor. They've gotten that way through sinful decisions, through laziness, whatever it might be. We as Christians don't get to just say, yay rich or yay poor or boo rich or boo poor. What we have to do is we have to separate out righteous acts versus unrighteous acts. You have to give people what is best for them. Now look at the last phrase here in verse 17. If you're able to shut off your guts from helping this person, how does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. It means it doesn't, okay? It doesn't. Now, let me say this, because this is an interesting Greek thing. When it says God's love, that can be what's called an objective or a subjective genitive. What does that mean? Is this saying that if you're not helping your brother, you don't love God? That's about your love towards God. Or is it saying because you don't help your brother, you don't understand God's love, meaning God's love to you? I think it is the second one. I think it is a subjective genitive. Now, let me tell you why this is important. Everybody look at me. I don't want you leaving here today and saying to yourself, I'm gonna try harder to love people. That will work for about a week and then it will fizzle out. I don't want you walking out of here today saying, I'm gonna try to love God more. That doesn't work, okay? The way that you grow in love for God and in love for other people is by you being transformed by God's love first. That's the way that it has to flow, okay? If you want to love people more, you don't try to love people more. Here's what you do. You sit there and you think God loves me. I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm forgiven, I'm not gonna lose my salvation. God has put me on a secure foundation in Christ. There's no longer hell for me. I am loved, I'm forgiven, I'm perfect. Christ laid down his life for me. And the more you dwell on that, I promise you, the more you will want to help other people. I promise you, the more that you will love God. You don't love God by trying to love God. You don't love others by trying to love others. You realize God's love for you and that transforms everything else you do. What this text is saying is the reason that this person isn't helping this other one is because they haven't been transformed. They haven't been transformed by God's love. There's something that is broken there that needs fixing. Last verse, 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Part of a pastor's job is not just to read the text, but to let you know how a text can be misapplied within their culture. Okay, so I need to rant against something for a second that I think is important. Many reformed evangelical churches, which are the circles we run in, we're a reformed evangelical church, okay? Many reformed evangelical churches will say that we should love people, will say that we should serve people, will say that we should be involved in the community, but they're not actually doing it, okay? They're, to say it another way, Love is not promoting how progressive or woke you are on social media or at conferences or writing books. It's not being a pastor who has a ton of money and writes books and preaches sermons and these kind of things, but doesn't actually help anybody, 
Tweeting is not the same as having a homeless person in your house. Putting something on Facebook is not the same as taking somebody to lunch. This command is not that you do 21st century phylacteries where you make your righteousness seen before men so you can sell more books, but you don't actually help people. Love is also not trying to get others in society to do something that you're not doing, okay? The command church is for you to help the poor. It's not to put somebody into office to care for the poor so you don't have to. By the way, those people don't actually care for the poor. They love the idea of poverty. They're millionaires. They don't care or know any poor people. They just know poor people are easy to manipulate when you give them hope. The command is for you to care for the poor, not to get other people to do something you're not willing to do. I have friends that will say, we need to be caring more for the poor. And I'll ask them, what have you done to care for the poor? Well, for one hour last year, I served at a food pantry. Okay, so Jesus dies for you and we're commanded to love one another and you're saying out of 365 days, you gave up an hour and now you think you're on a high ground to say the church isn't serving the poor. Why don't you do it? Why don't you take the log out of your eye first before you start looking for specs? You actually have to do what helps them. You actually have to do something that works, okay? That was pretty strong, so now I'm gonna tell a little jokey story, okay? I was working at a church one time and I had a cold, okay? I had some congestion and it was bad. It was like some type of sinus infection. And so some friends of mine came in and I said, I've got a cold, I don't feel real well. And they said, we've got something that I think will work. And I said, okay, is it like medicine that will decongest me? They said, no, it is this type of oil. Now listen, if you're a pro-oil person or against oil person, I'm just telling a joke, okay? I don't care. It's Adiaphora. Do what you want, okay? Do what you want. And so they they brought in this thing of this scented oil. And I said, okay, I'm an open-minded person. You wouldn't think so. You wouldn't think so. I've said a lot of really harsh things, but I can be open-minded. And I said, okay, what do, I, do, I, do I drink it? Because it's down here. This is, where, this is where the bat is. They're like, no, you don't drink it. I was like, okay, okay, I don't want to drink oil. That's good. I said, okay, maybe I can put it on my hand and rub it on my chest because it does have a strong scent. Maybe that will open up my lungs. Maybe it's kind of like Vicks VapoRub. Maybe it, will, maybe it will help me. Do I put it on my chest? They said, nope, you don't put it on your chest. I'm like, what do I do with your magic nard? What do I do with this? And they said, you need to put it on the bottom of your feet. And I said, okay, I'm an open-minded person. And so I put it on the bottom of my feet and they came back 30 minutes later and they said, how do you feel? And I was like, I mean, I feel the same. I feel the same. Uh, my office smells like foot Christmas, but other than that, I feel exactly the same. Nothing's changed. You see, they had good intention. You can even have good intention and it not actually help. What this text is saying is let us not love in just word or talk. Literally, it says word or tongue but in deed and in truth. James 2, 15 through 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Literally, when somebody asks me to help them move, I say, be warmed and well-fed. That's what I say. As a quote of this passage here from James, okay? Two more things, then we'll be done. First of all, look at what it says, let us not love in word and talk. That means not only love in word and talk. That doesn't mean you can't say anything loving. Like you're helping somebody and they're like, thanks for helping me. And you're like, I hate you. I'm just doing this because First John 3, right? You can say loving things. It means don't only do that, but in deed and in truth. I want you to see this last phrase because I think it's interesting here. What does it mean to love in truth? In one sense, it could just mean truly loving, doing what's helpful, But I think that there's a bigger thing here where it's saying love is what accords with the rest of the Bible. So let me say this. You can't help somebody. You can't really serve somebody until you've done theology. 
because you don't know what's actually helpful. When somebody comes to me and they say, this other person has wronged me, I don't immediately sympathize with them. Do you know why? Because I don't know yet if they're the victim or the victimizer. You don't want to be the guy that sympathizes with Potiphar's wife, the woman in the Old Testament that says that Joseph raped her when he did not. When somebody comes and brings a charge, what I have to say is, if this has happened to you, it's awful, but I must suspend judgment until we have done the research. There's a lot of churches that say, get out and love people and be kind and sympathize. You don't know what that looks like until you've done Bible. You don't know what's loving until you've done theology. You have to do gospel. You have to do Bible. You have to do theology first. That then lets you know what's loving. That then lets you know what people really need. That then lets you know how to help the community. Nothing untrue is ever loving. Nothing untrue is ever loving, okay? You can say truth with a mean spirit, but no matter how nice you say a lie, that's what the devil does, okay? Nothing untrue is ever loving. Little children, let us not love just with our words, if I could translate this, but rather actually help, actually serve one another in accordance with the Bible. That's what this text is saying. That's what this text is saying. So I think it would be fitting to finish the sermon by reading from Acts 2. This is Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says this. And they devoted themselves, this is the early church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let me pause, by the way. That's how we've set up our service, by the way, at Parkway. We do the teaching of the apostles. They've died, but we have their writings in the scriptures. We pray and we break bread together. We both take communion every Sunday and we meet with each other throughout the week in groups. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Notice that's not state-sponsored communism. That is them voluntarily doing it. That's the whole point. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is what we are called to do. God loves us first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love him because he first loved us. That's the order. God loves you when you're awful. That then causes you to love God back because he's given you grace. And out of that loving overflow, you serve other people. That's the idea of this text. Let's pray as those helping serve communion begin to pass out the elements and come forward for that. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. I confess that uh, I myself fail at this many, many times. I feel in my own life I'm much closer to Cain, who's frustrated or bitter, than I am to loving one another. So we just pray that we would be a church that continues to do this. I actually think we do a pretty good job of this as a church. I think we do a good job loving one another and helping one another. I've heard of multiple stories of people helping those who've lost their jobs or didn't have a car or whatever it might be. I pray that we would do that more and more, that we would serve one another, that we care for one another, that though I've joked about it, that we help each other move, that we bear one another's burdens. I pray that you would give us a deep love for this place. I pray that you'd give us a deep love for each other. We wouldn't just see each other as a number, fellow church people that we wave to on Sunday, but we'd get lunch after service. We'd hang out and grab coffee. We'd uh, join a group. We'd, uh, we'd make friends. We would just start informal Bible studies at our work, whatever it might be. We love you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.